This is Lifetime Sentence, the podcast where we watch bad Lifetime original movies and compare them to the truly heinous stories that inspired them. Because sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. Okay, so this week we had the immense pleasure of talking with Anna LeBaron. Anna is just this incredible woman who wears so many hats. She's a life coach, this impressive speaker. She's been on the Dr. Oz show. Um, she's an author. She's a social media coach. And what piqued our interest and what made us reach out to her is the memoir she wrote called The Polygamous Daughter about her experience growing up in and escaping from one of the most notorious polygamous cults. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute, but there was also a 1993 made for TV movie that aired on CBS called Prophet of Evil about Anna's father. And Aaron, you watched that, correct? I did. I did watch that. And I will just say um, it covers um, one of his or some of his early crimes. And I say early because this man was just a real piece of work. Um but it covers a crime in which he convinces one of his wives to murder someone for being a false prophet and how the police department then uh, caught up with this woman. She was actually acquitted of the murder. Um, and then they actually used that information to track down Herbal LeBaron himself and arrest him at the end in the middle of a bridge, which I'm assuming is supposed to be the border the border in quotes um because that's where the border is right like i there was a whole scene with a bridge it was very interesting well i mean you know (laughs) the border bridge everyone knows there's just a chasm separating us from mexico these days all right so you have to go to the very middle and that's where the border is And the federales are not allowed to cross on this side. And like the uh, border patrol is not allowed to cross on that side. It's very contentious. Oh, good. Yeah. So if you just straddle the very center board, then you're half in American, mm-hmm. half in Mexico. And then you're home free, basically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the movie was pretty crazy. But what I really think was so much better was talking with um, Anna LeBaron and about her experience growing up. And, you know, the how her father and his kind of aura affected her in her lifetime. Yes. And so before we play the interview in its entirety, um, just a little bit of background about this cult. Um, so... And if you want more information, um, Erva LeBaron does have a Wikipedia page. That's where I got some of this information. And I listened to, I think it was a show, but then what I listened to was just the audio. So it felt like a podcast um, called Real Crime, The Reels Files. And the, um, the title was, I Lived with a Killer, Church of the Lamb of God. And then, of course, you and I both read The Polygamist Daughter, um, and um so good cannot recommend that enough and you know really the the main crime here is one that's not even covered in the movie that i watched um i know it's covered on the wikipedia page obviously but um the four o'clock murders where even after Erval LeBaron died in prison he was able to orchestrate murders from from the grave kind of um of people that he had felt quote unquote betrayed him in his lifetime right so just a little bit of uh context and anna sorry to interrupt but anna kind of got caught up in the in the middle of that she was she was in the middle of the situation with these murders yes um so 
1890, and we've mentioned this before, but just brief history, and Anna also hits on this in the interview, but in 1890, mm-hmm. the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, which is often known as the Mormon Church, but as Anna explains, they prefer to be called the full title, so we are going to pay that respect as she does. Um, Absolutely. They abandoned the practice of polygamy, um, but because of this, some members of the Mormon community were excommunicated because they didn't personally abandon those polygamous vows. Um, and so many of them ran away to Mexico to continue to practice um, without interference from U.S. law enforcement. And so one of these people was Alma LeBaron, um, who was Anna's grandfather. So right. um, he... In 1924, he moved his family, um, which included his two wives and eight children, to northern Mexico, and they started a farm called called Colonia LeBaron. Um, Mm -hmm. He died about 30 years later, and he passed the leadership of his community, the settlement they'd made, to his son, Joel LeBaron. Um, Did he take more wives? I'm just curious. um, I... Don't know that answer, to be honest, because my brief history was just to breeze up to where we get Anna, because... Because I do know, and generally in the in the polygamous sect, in order to, quote-unquote, qualify as a um, polygamous leader, you needed to have three or more wives. I assume that he did, because like I said, he did live for 30 years after they yeah. moved, um, and they'd amassed kind of a pretty big following there. Um and Great. so in Great. 1951, Alma dies and he leaves this community to his son, Joel. And Joel incorporates the community as um, the fir- the church of the firstborn of the fullness of times. Because as you and I both know, if your cult, ha- like if your religion has 13 names in the title, it's a cult. They always overname cults. I mean, but that one just really rolls off the tongue. <laughs> I just feel like you can say it in everyday conversation and not feel weird about it right and they actually moved back to salt lake city um joel's younger brother ervil he was the second in command during the early years of um the church's existence um and so um ervil kind of split off with his group that was numbered around 30 families who lived both in utah and then um this community los molinos in baja california mexico Right. Um, so in 1972, they had this split of leadership and Ervil goes and starts the church of the firstborn of the lamb of God in San Diego. I mean, also rolls right off the tongue. Very easy to slip into everyday conversation. Right. Well, and just to prove <laughs> that, um, Ervil was in fact the king leader, he actually ordered the death of his brother. Yes. Um, and so, um, the leadership of the church in California, of Baja California then passes down to, uh, Verlin, Verlan, Verlan, I don't know who's the youngest LeBaron I believe brother. It's, I believe it's Verlin. And I believe this is when they ride, like in the movie, they ride through the town with sticks on fire and set everything on fire and then ride back through the town and shoot everyone. That's exactly right. So in 1974. It was delightful to watch. In 1974. I mean, yeah. 
Go I'm ahead. sure. Oh no, it's fine. In 1974, <laughs> Erville was convicted of the murder of his brothers two year, of his brother two years earlier. So while he was in prison, he convinced um, his followers to raid Los Molinos. That's where Verlin was. Mm-hmm. Um, but Verlin was actually now in Nicaragua, so they just raided his town and destroyed but it, it was and with killed their fire two stick. With fire sticks, not your yeah. Amazon fire stick with right. a, a stick. On fire. <laughs> right. Like they're, they're one step short of like tar and feathers. Um, yes. Exactly. So Ervil was then um, released from prison. His conviction was overturned on a technicality. Most people assume that technicality was in the form of a bribe. Yes. That is what the movie also assumes is that the technicality came in the form of cash. So um, Ervil in his lifetime, married 13 women and fathered 51 children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Anna, our guest tonight, ha- is one of those 51. Um, but he, along the way, in 1975, he ordered the killing of Bob Simons, who is a polygamist who was trying to minister to Native Americans. Because mm-hmm. he claimed to be the one true almighty... I wish I could remember the exact title. Anna says it later. Because Native Americans don't have enough problems (laughs) in their own homeland. Right. Um, So in 1977, he's then convicted of ordering the killing of uh, Rulon Alred, who is a leader of another Mormon fundamentalist sect. Um, Mm -hmm. And Ervil's 13th wife, Rena, carried out this murder. Um, She and so, um, so in Rena, the movie, Rena is then subsequently arrested and tried for the crime, but acquitted. Yes, um, because she looks very innocent and blonde, and she's pregnant. That's what happened in the movie. I'm not sure what happened in real life. Um, very similar. Um, in fact, Rena Chenoweth actually um, wrote her own memoir called The Blood Covenant. It came out in 1990. The question? Yes. Is she related to Kristen Chenoweth? No, they're spelled differently. Oh. I'm um, just trying to beat her. <laughs> right. So, um, while Ervil is in prison... Oh, so her, um, her information that she gives leads to the capture and arrest of Ervil LeBaron. And yes. while he's in prison... That's the exchange that we talked about in the middle of the bridge. Right. <laughs> uh, so while in prison, Ervil writes this 400 page book called the book of the new covenants, which is mm-hmm. literally just like a hit list. It's a commandment to kill disobedient church members. Um, and in this, and book, in the movie, as soon as he finishes this, he stands up, has a massive coronary and dies. Basically not far from the truth. He did die pretty quickly after that. Um, So on. Let me see. So several murders happened because of this list. Um, Yeah. And then like kind of lots of stuff fall out. His 10th wife is arrested and convicted and sentenced to life in prison for a murder of one of LeBaron's henchmen who tried to leave the church um, yeah. and then there's a lot of like alleged murders that are like that they caused uh, or were instrumental in alleged murders. His followers were, um, but then, 
Okay, in 1980, he was sentenced to life in prison, and he died pretty soon after that. Um, and did. on August 16th, 1981, Ervil's brother, Verlin, um, which is the one Ervil tried to have killed that was in Nicaragua, um, right, he right, right. died in a car accident in Mexico City two days after yeah. Ervil's body was discovered. And of in course, the movie, he was run off the road by a guy with a mullet. Well, um, in, Octo- in October 2012, Verlin's grandson, Brent, was in an interview with Vice magazine, and he stated that some of the LeBaron family believed that this was not a coincidence. Um. I mean, yeah, when someone like randomly, when things randomly happen and people randomly go to jail and then randomly die and randomly issue a hit list like from prison and then someone randomly like runs off the road and their car explodes because of the hit list, it's generally not <laughs> right. a coincidence. So, like I said, LeBaron died in prison in 1981, um, mm-hmm. but even so... In 1988, he orchestrated, essentially, um, the murder of more of his family members, um, known as the Four O'Clock Murders. Um, Six family members organized and killed um, three former members, as well as an eight-year-old child, all within minutes of each other in Texas at four o'clock on this day in 1988. Um, And so... It has been estimated that 25 people have been killed as a result of his prison cell orders. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because my um, my notes from the end of the 1993 murder or the 1993 movie puts the number of additional murders at 15. Huh. So then you're going to be over in the next mm, 10 years, I guess you're going to be over 25. Yep. So, um, anyway, so that is the brief history that we thought we were going to have an expanded history, but there is no part of this interview that I want to cut out. Anna is such an incredible and uplifting spirit to have spent the evening with us. Insightful. I feel like a better person for having talked to her. So even though this episode is long and this interview is long, I really encourage all of you to listen to it. It was a, an amazing experience. And I'm telling you, our next guest has big shoes to fill. Big Absolutely. shoes. Absolutely. Sure. And we would love recommendations on guests that you think we would like to, mm-hmm. like that would be good interviewees because we found mm-hmm. out that just emailing people sometimes works. Yeah. And I mean, just big thanks again to Anna LeBaron. I, um, I just so appreciate her for coming on our, our silly little podcast and um, <laughs> talking to us for several hours about life and cults and uh, podcasting and therapy and just all the things that we talk about all and HEB. Things. We talk about HEB. We do. We cover, <laughs> we span the gamut. We do. <laughs> so without further ado, here is our interview with cult survivor, an incredible badass woman to add to our collection of badass women. Amen. Anna LeBaron. Yes. Nice to meet you. <laughs> yes. Now, um, I have a headset. Would that help the sound be better? 
you're you sound great on our end yeah i think so okay i think you sound fine all right so you are officially our first interview so we're going to be very awkward mm-hmm. and i'm letting you know that up front <laughs> yes we this are going, very this awkward. Is going to be so much fun <laughs> You guys can edit in case we chase like rabbits and things go off the rails, right? Uh, well, we can, but we're not known for our good editing or our inability to chase rabbits. So, so well, then, um, then it's just going to be what it is, <laughs> and right. and it's probably going to be awesome. I'm excited. I think our people are going to love it. The odds of it turning out freaking awesome are like astronomical. I appreciate your positivity coming into this. I'm on board. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I haven't. I'm so looking forward to this because almost every other interview I've ever done in my whole life, it's been serious. This is the first time somebody came at me like saying it's going to be a little bit irreverent. (laughs) Uh, There might be some talk about this and that, and it's okay. You know, I'm like, I'm here for it. Let's go. I'm so glad because as I was typing that, I was like, she's going to say no. (laughs) Nope. Well, I figured anybody who's a TikTok queen like you are is down to clown. So. (laughs) Isn't that hilarious? I love TikTok. (laughs) Well, it just just was so fortuitous. I was in one of those wonderful nights where I couldn't sleep. And for whatever reason, TikTok knows how much I love cults. Now, my TikTok mm-hmm. is completely professional. Like, it's my teacher account. But somehow yeah. that algorithm was like, you're obsessed with cults. So let's put you there. We know this about you. You've watched all the videos. You might not comment on them because this is your professional account. But we know you watch them. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. going to take over the world. I mean, I'm here for it. Let's do it. Yay. All right. So to kind of start, you are, you have been introduced. Wait, are we recording? Oh, I've been recording so that we could catch like this Excellent. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know we were recording. So now I'm wondering what I said. Okay, let's go. (laughs) Um, So just like the rest of us, you'll find out when we release the episode. (laughs) Okay. Um, we so, never know what we say on here. No, it's true. We'll get texts from people that's like, hey, um, the place is actually pronounced blah, blah, blah. And I'll be like, when did we talk about that? <laughs> like, what place? I have no idea what they're talking about. And my name is pronounced Anna, just so we can out of the gate, like, be yes. friends. Because only your friends actually know how to pronounce your name right right we in fact had that conversation before we called you i was like it's anna it says so in the book i heard her say it on tiktok i practiced it we're good okay (laughs) i listened to your book on audio so i'm well versed with your name (laughs) perfect yeah Um, so speaking of books as i researched you on the internet and looked for everything i could because i want to pretend like i'm a good and professional host um you have been (laughs) um described as a like a um a very uh, impactful speaker i've just made up a word now and we're going to go with it Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um you do author coaching and you do social media coaching and you've written this incredible memoir and all these things have added up to this wonder woman that's sitting here. 
So <laughs> we would just like to thank you, Anna LeBaron, for joining us and uh, yes. kind of to to explain to our listeners what put you in our sphere is mm-hmm. um, you are also a cult survivor. And um, beyond that, you're the daughter of a cult leader and you are so open and willing to talk about that. It's just so incredible. And we are so excited to have you with us tonight. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, um, and I so look forward to all the weirdness that's going to happen as this conversation unfolds. Uh, all the weirdness we promise. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So, I mean, Paul has explained he was, he is obsessed with cults. I kind of am as well, um, especially um, the fundamentalist Mormon um, type cults, polygamist type cults. Um, I did all, I lived, used to live in San Angelo, Texas, which is right by El Dorado, which is where Warren Jeffs had his compound. Yes. And I, I studied sociology in college and wrote a whole bunch of papers about um, you know, Warren Jess and that, like that kind of mindset and community. So it's always been really fascinating to me. So I'm uh, really excited to get to talk to you and pick your brain a little bit. Well, I mean, you were, you were up close and personal with the whole Warren Jeffs thing when that went down. So, mm-hmm. wow. It was like, wow. Yeah. When that happened in 2008 and the state of Texas swooped in and took 400 kids into custody. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like reliving my childhood watching the trials unfold and now Warren Jeffs is in prison running everything from prison just like my father did before he so it's so wild to me too just the scope of that control Mm -hmm. where I mean you would think you take the the prophet out and you put him in prison and he's not able to have such a huge influence but it seems like with both your father and with Warren Jeffs too, it only bolstered their influence and made people follow them more. Um, I I think to a certain extent, I know that I, I've heard stories and I've and I've watched the situation where in uh, Colorado City in Hilldale, where Warren Jeffs was originally, mm-hmm. and that situation is such that because of the internet, because of the magical powers of the internet that put us together. Mm-hmm. Um, it is giving people who, because even though cell phones and internet service and looking at things on the internet is forbidden, as soon as you make something forbidden, people are going to go for it. Oh, like, absolutely. That's just human nature. And people find stuff on the internet and it causes them to have cognitive dissonance about their beliefs in Warren Jeffs. And then they find resources and find a way out. And so that's happening, that's, but not as fast as we want, but, but mm-hmm. it's happening. And so um, that's good. And back in the you know early 80s, when my dad died in prison, you know there wasn't the thing called the internet. There wasn't mm-hmm. cell phones and ways to communicate. Just my dad had control through letters, through phone calls, and people just blindly followed him. It's just wild to me. But Paul, did you? <laughs> oh, so I'm just so fascinated. Um, so, I know. Um, 
Well, as Aaron and I mentioned, we both read, well, she listened to, which research shows it's the same as reading as an, as an English teacher. I have to tell everybody that it's true, um, but it true. that we have spent the past couple of days. Um, I feel like we have, you know, met so much of you already. Um, so mm-hmm. let's tell us about writing the polygamous otter and kind of the experience of putting your experiences down on paper. Okay, so it was um, it was very difficult to write the book, and, and I had known I wanted to tell my story for decades. When you read, I love memoir because every time I read a memoir, because nobody gets a memoir deal for a publisher that has a little Lily White sweet childhood. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean they don't. And so every memoir I've ever read in my whole life, and I've read a lot of them. I was thinking, I have a story to tell. I mean, they, look what they survived, but look what I survived. I have a story to tell. Mm-hmm. And so for decades, I had this burden. You know, there's a quote that there's no greater burden than an untold story. And mm-hmm. I, I don't have the person who quoted it, but it's not me. Um, <laughs> but that is what was in my heart and burdening me for a long time, is that I wanted to tell my story. But because it was such a big story and it was so overwhelming and I had so much um, trauma, abuse and neglect piled up on the inside that I needed healing before I could do that. Right. Before I could begin. And so I went through a lot of professional therapy before I was ready to begin writing. And then um, because I believe, you know, things that are divinely orchestrated and events, circumstances, and people get placed in certain things and in certain orders that get an outcome. And I had been like in my heart prepared and I would sit at my computer and type, like not even be able to type because I didn't know where to start. How do you start? Mm -hmm. Like (laughs) once upon a time, you know, (laughs) I was born a long time ago. You know, it's like, how do you even start? So I would sit at my computer and just like not even know what to do and then close it because I couldn't figure it out. But I went to a writer's conference where they said, if you will come to this conference and engage in this process, we will, you will leave here with a working title of the book, the subtitle, the chapter titles, content that you're going to put in each of those chapters. You'll leave with a website. Like I left there owning AnnaLeBaron.com. Look at you. I, I mean, know. I done anything with it, but they said here, don't don't look up whether your name website is available until you have your credit card sitting next to you because if you cl- search your name and then exit out without buying it, the next time you go in and search it, it's going to be like three times the price. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so I went there. And we did the thing and I bought my name website in January of 2014. And then oh. left there with the first four or 500 words written. Whereas before I, I was totally stuck. Mm-hmm. And, and then proceeded for the next three months to get about 30 to 40,000 words on paper. Just my first draft that was just horrid i i would never show it to anybody because it's embarrassing but the words were on the paper and you can only edit you can't edit a blank screen 
No. So mm-hmm. I had something to work with. And something that Leslie Wilson was able to help me um, articulate better because I don't know how to write scene and dialogue and I did not have the time to go and learn that skill. Right. So her name is on the front of the book with mine because she's the one who took all that weird first draft of just weird memories put together in a loose way and, and made it readable for the, for the reader. That's amazing. And I'd really like to, you know, um, I have a, um, interesting backstory to myself as well. Um, my mother is a con artist and so, uh, very, I had a very interesting childhood. Um, and so, um, I've always wanted to kind of write about it, but like you said, it's just, to me, it's just a jumble of memories and I write it down. There's no coherent storyline to it because, you know, my memories are, and especially memories with trauma associated with them are very patchy. They're missing pieces. And so it's very difficult to get all of that down. But I, I think it's so, you know, interesting. And I imagine that first draft had to be just like a purge. Yes. Like, I feel like that's what it would be for me. Just like free form, just purge of everything that I know. And here's, here's all I did. And it might even help you if you wanted to just get it out like externalize the story right now it's internalized if you just want to externalize it just to get it out from the inside of you to the outside um, which is an important thing to happen when you've had trauma and all kinds of stuff Um, and it's a helpful therapy to journal and so Mm -hmm. you do it one memory at a time and that's what I did I wrote down one memory at a time I didn't think about which order they were coming in it was just, this is the thing that I'm thinking about. Oh, yeah, remember that one time this person did this? And and I wrote down as much as I could remember, like, which house it was and who was there and who else lived there at the time. And do you see my brain even, like, I'm closing my eyes trying to recreate the story? Uh-huh. Like, as I'm talking to you, that's mm-hmm. how I did it. I just, like, closed my eyes and remembered what that scene was and then wrote as much as I could of the scene and who and what and when and why and where but not necessarily in a readable fashion. Right. I didn't worry about punctuation, you know, formatting. It was just free form. This is one memory that I remember. That is so interesting. And then we were able to take each of those memories with Leslie. Um, she would call me on the phone and we would talk about each one. And then I would retell the story, but not with the text in front of me. And I didn't know what I had said and written. Mm-hmm. She would say, tell me about the time that da-da-da. And then from my guts, I would say, <laughs> is the right <laughs> From my guts, I would get take myself back there and tell her exactly what happened and see my eyes are closed because I'm taking myself back yeah. to mm-hmm. tell her stories. Yeah, absolutely. I would cry. I would, you know, ex- express myself. I would use the tone that they said the words and... And then describe as best as I could the scene and what I was seeing around me so that she could incorporate all of that and and create the scene and the dialogue in a way that matched what actually happened. Mm -hmm. And that's how every chapter was written. And that's one thing I was really taken with. And when you talk about your childhood, and I mean, Paul and I were kind of talking about this um, before we got on the phone, but you talk about these memories such as um, gardening 
and oh what was the other one oh where you talk about going into the donation piles and I'm, I'm like you you the way you describe it you make it sound so um like normalized and it's so interesting to me like when did you realize that that's not what normal people or uh, nobody's normal <laughs> normal people did like right. with their lives like how how they got clothing and food etc right I mean, that was our normal. And so here in this, and the reason why I wrote my book, there's a whole stack of books that have been written by my dad. You've probably seen that TikTok I made where I dropped them all. Yes. <laughs> okay. Run. <laughs> I yeah. that one. Okay. So there's a whole stack of books written about my father and our family, all of them from the perspective of the adults. Mm-hmm. Yes. The adults doing their stuff in journalists investigating and wives of the polygamists and all of that. And, and, and all of them deserve to do whatever they want and tell whatever they want and write whatever they want. But nobody had told the story of what it was like as a child being born and raised in that community. Right. And I just said, I want to tell my story and my story only. And so I literally put blinders on while I, not literally. <laughs> I'm not even using English right. <laughs> I don't know what that word means. No, I put blinders on. Hypothetical blinders. What is it? What is the word I'm looking for, Mr. Figurative. Figurative blinders. Thank you. You're welcome. I don't, I can't English even, I don't math and I don't English apparently. Not a single judgment here. No worries. So, um, and I didn't tell anybody else's story if I could avoid it with, I mean, with everything I had, I wanted to just tell my story and give the reader the perspective, like get, let the reader be inside of my head, looking through my eyes, hearing with my ears, what was happening around me so that they could be immersed in that culture along with me. Mm-hmm. And when I, because I didn't know things, that's why the publisher put a sensor bar across my eyes. I love that. Yeah. It was so powerful. I, I did too. Know. I love that, that, oh gosh. Okay, then, English teacher, teach us English. That image, <laughs> that, yes. that metaphor, yeah. that. That image, what a, the, yeah. the, the juxtaposition kind of that it created. Yeah. yeah. Between, yeah, between I was a child and I didn't know what was going on and all these other books, these are the adults, they Mm -hmm. knew-ish. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so they put the sensor bar across my mouth because there were things I could not say. Like, we were very censored and we were taught to lie to outsiders. Mm -hmm. And so with all of that, um, I wanted my readers, when I found out stuff, that's when my readers found out stuff. My readers went through the whole thing without me knowing I was in a cult until I discovered I was in a cult. I, and that was after I got out. I didn't know I was in a cult until after I got out. I <laughs> noticed that, like, as as English teacher, I can't ever turn that off. I noticed the first time that cult came out, like, in your own <laughs> recollection. And I did find that very interesting that as when you narrated as a child, it was very much a childlike narration. And you talk about selling cake on the streets of Mexico and, and 
how terrifying that must have been for you, I cannot imagine because you even admit that you knew that children were disappearing and those things. And, um, but to go from that to at 18 years old or around, you know, 18 is where you finally said Colt in the book for the first time and to get to grow with you as a person and think, you know, my students all the time, I'm like, but this is how it happens in life. When we talk about character development, that I was like, this is a real person developing in front of our eyes. I just, yeah. You don't know until you know. I wanted people, like, you knew what seven-year-old Anna was experiencing. You knew what 10-year-old Anna was experiencing on the beach house. You knew what 13-year-old Anna was experiencing when she ran away from home. And you knew why she was running away from home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think she was in a cult? No. Was she trying to escape a cult? No, because I didn't know I was in one. I was not wanting to go back to Denver because of the really 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 bad bad way that we would have been treated in denver mm-hmm. and all the abuse that was heaped on us and i didn't want to go back to that part of what i found so interesting was that as you progress you seem to start to you know child on seems to start to understand like this isn't right but i don't know why right like i don't want to do this my like everything in my whole body is telling me not to do this but I don't know why. Right. And it, it like really, you could see your struggle and kind of going back to, um, you know, your childhood while you're growing up in this massively different way than people normally do. Uh, it seems that you were really happy um, kind of mostly when you were at that beach house uh, with Ramona, that seems to be like your happiest time as a child. And I just want to know, like, is that too, like when you think back on your childhood, is that the time when you think that you were the happiest as a child? Yes. As a matter of fact, you know, when they, when people say, think of your happy place, it's always the beach. Mm-hmm. Me too. <laughs> it's not the beach in Mexico because that one, like it wasn't a fun time. I was right. very traumatized and scared. And we were taught to be afraid of the ocean because they didn't want us drowning, you know? Um, <laughs> oh, they would say, the devil owns the ocean. The devil controls the ocean. So we wouldn't go in the water and drown, you know? For real? Like, <laughs> for real. That is so funny. I'm just trying to think in my head, like, God made everything. And then he gave the ocean to the devil. and was like, you can have this and, like, drown the kids. <laughs> I yeah. That's the whole purpose of it, you know? It's like so, Lion King. My, everything my, the water touches is your kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> My happy place is a nice warm beach and, you know, plenty of food and, you know, <laughs> good food and a little drink with an umbrella, you know, uh, yeah. and, and happy stuff happening around me. That's my happy place. And it's the sound of the ocean that is so comforting because when I had been separated from my mom for now over a year without any contact with her at all as a nine and 10 year old child in a foreign country, um, it was finally getting to go and live with my sister. That was such a relief of this massive amount of heartache and trauma and just completely not understanding what's happening to the world around me, why the things that are happening to me are happening, being sent on a bus back and forth because nobody wanted me. 
you know? That story was so wild. The whole time I was waiting for something terrible to happen when you're talking about getting on the bus and then going, and then there's like, no, you go, like, go back. go back. And then you just go back and forth. And I'm just thinking of this poor little girl that's dusty and tired and just riding the bus back and forth. I'm hungry. I was. <laughs> it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Oh. And so finally I get, somebody takes me to go live with Ramona and and here's the the woman that um, in in big families like that the older siblings end up taking care of the younger ones. Right. It's just how it works. And Ramona was the oldest of my mom's daughters. So when I came along, number ten, Ramona was charged with my keep for the most part. And my my maternal attachment stuff is towards Ramona yeah. because of my early childhood experiences with her when life was still semi good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we used to play cards and play jacks and, you know, fish and war and all that with her, slapjack even, you know. So those were my early childhood memories. And then to be reunited with her in this time where for a year I had been separated from my mom. Mm-hmm. And, and just to experience the haven that she created for me in that environment and that what she meant to me. Um, And then the other thing was that she was there and she was in hiding. Yeah. And I didn't know that. So I did not say that in the book because my readers didn't know it. And there's a lot of people who, who really felt cheated because I didn't say who did what, who, when, why, and where in my book and just out every single adult who had ever committed a crime in my father's name mm-hmm. and say their names out loud like this person did this and this person did this and I got criticized a lot in reviews about how if you're really wanting information about the history of this cult this is the wrong you know there's other books better books that you, you can read and I agree but I feel like that was the point right that so was the point like it's not I'm, supposed to be this informational Right. It's supposed to be like what it looked like to you as a child growing up in this environment when you knew nothing else of the world. Right. And then all of these other books that are written that have that information in them, you know, it's, it's really long and tedious and well, boring to do all the history of all the people that were involved in bringing mm-hmm. about my family of origin well i was about to say like if you were to put to task everyone who'd ever wronged in the name of your i mean you're one of 51 siblings like that could take years for you to list the names of everyone you know (laughs) and just make it through your family yeah yes you know drawing the family tree is like a not it's a that's not for the faint of heart Mm -hmm. did you see that i liked it from my perspective i'm sorry did you see that one TikTok where I wrote down all my siblings' names? Yes, I was. Yes. Sixty-four, because I included all my stepbrothers and sisters because I consider them brothers and sisters. We grew up together. Well, and that was something I was curious about. Is you you mentioned that um, you have a group chat or like a group text with your siblings? How many siblings are actively in that group text? There's not. I mean, we have. I have like different several ones. Text. Okay. There you go. Okay. Configurations of people because I promise you, most of my brothers are not interested in the least in all the chatty girl talk that 
we do. Like my brother Hiram, though, we have one that's like my mom's girls. Right. Like, like six of my mom's girls plus Hiram, and he's like our honorary sister because he tolerates that girl stuff like nobody's business and like it's his job and and we just adore him in our group chat he's our resident guy he tolerates all of our nonsense (laughs) and so you know we just there's there's so many different configurations of group chats happening and facebook messenger group chats and different ways and whatsapp and this and that and the other where everybody's just kind of stays loosely connected and interconnected whereas Mm -hmm. You know, like there are family members that won't talk to other family members and for really good reasons that involve just self-care and it's too triggering to even say their name. Well, and that's you know? understandable. My family as well. I get that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's there's a loose connection of people where it's not like people hate one another and it's just that there's too much, too much pain has right. transpired that it's it's just a chasm that can't be you know crossed at this time maybe later one day but at the same time i'm connected to this person and then i'm connected to this person and so information excuse me information travels that way and people know about what's going on in our family there's not very many major things that happen where somebody doesn't know sometimes it happens and oh you didn't know you know but most of the time the information travels in ways that are just like, who who told who? And oh, oh everybody just knows. <laughs> and was that the case before you had Facebook Messenger and GroupMe and all those things to keep in touch? Like, did it seem like no. your family was always informed? No, we were, we were very um, estranged from one another. Okay. Until, um, like I wrote about it in the book where... I went to, I moved to Central Texas yes. and met some of my family there and I was scared to death. Yeah. Uh, and then, but I knew Rena was a safe person mm-hmm. and she had lived among them and she was still alive. And, and I lived there for six months. They invited me to come to the Christmas thing and I was too scared to go. Yeah. And then they invited me to the 4th of July thing. And I thought to myself, I have lived here for six months. If they wanted me dead, they could have already done it. And so they probably don't want me dead. Right. That was, right. If you, you know you're in trouble if that's the kind of thing that you think about when you think about going to a 4th of July party with your family. Right. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. had to think through those kinds of thoughts that were for good reason. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I also thought, okay, Rena has lived here for all this time. If they wanted her dead, they could have had her dead a long time ago. We're probably going to be okay. And then I show up and I'm thinking in my head, you know, my my kid's dad at the time, we were still married at that time. And I thought, he's a Marine. He knows how to, you know, hurt some people if he needs to. Like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) And, and that's how, you know, it's really, really, really messed up. But mm-hmm. I, and this is the dialogue happening inside of my head and what's happening in their head as they're inside of the house waiting for me to get out of the car and come in. They're all telling each other, act normal. Don't scare her away. <laughs> <laughs> I wish my family would make that panic alarm just every once in a while. Act Same. normal. Same. <laughs> I mean, and like, 
I was the first one from that side of the family that had been injured by many of their actions mm -hmm. that came to the dark side. <laughs> I mean, you know, Rena was, she, she's the one who took them all in and finished raising them all when they were left parentless teen, bunch of teenage girls raising a bunch of babies in the desert of Mexico, trying to figure out how they're going to feed a bunch of babies. All the adults were in prison. That is and these teenage girls figured it out. Mm -hmm. They went and got, they went, I'm not going to tell their stories, but one day, one day they're going to write their stories and it's going to blow your mind. Yeah. For that day, because as much as I suffered and, and now that you've read the book, you know how much suffering was involved. Yes. The, 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 the amount of suffering from the people who stayed in the cult and were doing the things that were causing harm to others. Mm -hmm. the, the suffering for them was exponentially more. Yeah. It's, it's incredible how long reaching that is. You're talking about people that, you know, were teenagers are probably still very young and just getting into their adult life and thinking about their stories and how they were raised and how that's affected who they've become. And there'll be a whole new set of stories to listen to at some point. And, you know, this goes so far back and so far forward. It's yeah. Just, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I dedicated the book to my siblings, to my brothers and sisters, to every uh, child born from Herbal LeBaron. And, and, I said, you know, your the stories that we tell to each other when we get together is the best therapy. Mm -hmm. And we yeah. hash we hash all those stories, and us being able to get together and and verbalize ex like what I was talking to you earlier, externalize the things that happened to us has been the the healing, uh, just a grace, just mm -hmm. pure grace that we have been able to reconnect and reestablish relationships that, that are good and healthy. And then the, the best part of all, all that we, we didn't recognize was happening until it was later and we looked back is when we first met each other in Central Texas, when I showed up at the 4th of July party, all we had to talk about was the past. Mm -hmm. But as soon as we had the 4th of July party and we got together again, now we could talk about the 4th of July party and right. the past because we never stop talking about the past. It's just <laughs> always come. Yeah. Right. You know. <laughs> but now we have a thousand other things to talk about. Yeah. You know, when, when one of my brothers comes through town and on his way into town texts me, hey, can I crash on your couch tonight? Hey, yeah, sure. I'll get some sheets out. You know, um, brother that I didn't meet until 2008. Wow. You know, wow. Just, I love to tell those stories because incredible, it's incredible. And then when somebody in our family dies of natural causes and we go to the funeral, it's like, we don't even know how to act because we're not afraid for our life. Right. Because nobody's killing each other anymore. Mm -hmm. And this person didn't die under traumatic circumstances. They died of old age. Right. Mm -hmm. 
this is so weird. But also I remember the first time I went to a funeral where it was, they died of natural causes. And it was like, this is interesting. Like, this is how normal people have funerals. Mm-hmm. Who knew? Who even knew that you could have a funeral and not be afraid for your life? <laughs> That's awful. Well, and you're but... talking about getting back together with your family. And I just want to shout out to H-E-B because I live in Central Texas. And <laughs> no store does more for getting your family reunion together and also <laughs> serving you the best groceries. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yeah, yes. shout out to H-E-B. We love you. <laughs> and so I it was just like, and just understanding that, you know, those kinds of connections were happening. And this was early 2000. Mm-hmm. And because of how my personality is and how I am hardwired um, to connect with people, and I'm just very extroverted. And if you've ever done the Strengths Finder test, you know, on my top five strengths, includer is in my top five. And so I found Yahoo groups, you know, when that was a thing. I don't know Uh if y'all are old enough. One of you look old enough to know what Yahoo groups is. Oh, yeah. Oh, bless you. I am. (laughs) All right. I don't feel like I'm talking gibberish now. So I had Yahoo groups and I was so in love with Yahoo groups because that's all we had at the time. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so I would put all my people into little groups. This was my high school group and this was my college group. And this was the group that of the, of the girls that I went to college with that, you know, we had our own little thing on the side, you know, where (laughs) we could say stuff, you know, (laughs) we would not know anything about that in our own lives. That is absolutely not true. I talk shit about people. So, you know, all that I was putting all my people in all these groups and when I moved to Central Texas and found my family guess what I did I started a Yahoo group and said let's all be in this Yahoo group because we were spread out and this is how we got to know each other and so I was the moderator of that group for years and then and then um, one of my family members wrote a book her name is Susan Schmidt and she called her book his favorite wife can you imagine oh boy (laughs) Okay. So she wrote a book. And so I was like, I knew her. So I was like, okay, tell me when you're coming to Dallas so I can get a group of my friends and come to your book signing. She goes, well, it only, um, I'm only posting on Facebook where I'm going to be. So follow me on Facebook and you'll know. And I literally hard rolled my eyes. (laughs) Like hard back in my head as they would go because a bunch of my family members had been sending me those invitations to join Facebook because that's how it was in in the day of the early Facebook. You had to get an email inviting you to join it. Right. Right. Let me tell you how far back I go with Facebook. Uh-huh. I joined Facebook when you could only join if you went to certain universities and you had that .edu email address. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's when I joined Facebook. Right. And then it opened up to every, you know, all the commoners. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was rife with Farmville invitations and. Yes. All of Remember that. Remember we used to throw for, sheep at each other? Yeah. So, <laughs> for no reason? Yeah. So because I had all my Yahoo groups that I was the moderator of and, you know, discussion groups about all kinds of stuff I would join just because, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is so much fun. Uh-huh. Um, I could barely keep up with all the emails from my groups. And so when I would get these invitations 
questions in my email from family members and friends to join Facebook, I would just delete, 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 because I have, I don't have time for Facebook. I don't know what y'all are doing, but I'm over here having fun in these Yahoo groups. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand what Facebook was. So my sis, my aunt tells me, follow me on Facebook if you want to know where I'm going to be. And so that's why the hard rolling of the eyes. And I was mm -hmm. like, fine. Yeah. For you. Because I want to support you, you know, and be a good family member. Mm -hmm. So I clicked the thing and put in my email address because that's what you have to do to sign up. And because all these people had sent me requests, Facebook knew who my family and friends were. So as soon as I logged in, there was all these Facebook friend requests that I had to sort through. And it was like, okay, fine, accept, 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 fine, 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 fine. Let me just find Susan so I can find out where she's going to be when she's coming mm -hmm. to Dallas. So I accepted all their friend requests because I didn't know you could just scroll to the bottom and say skip. <laughs> when I finally got Mark to the Zuckerberg bottom. Mark Zuckerberg is the worst. He puts that at the bottom. <laughs> And when I finally got to the bottom and I finished accepting all the friend requests from the people that I knew, there was probably a hundred of them. I mean, because my family is just vast. Right. Um, and friends too, you know? So I moved to the, uh, like when you finish your setting up your profile, they send you to right to your newsfeed and they're populated in my newsfeed was all this pictures and people talking to each other on the on their walls and you know i mean it was like i mean i looked at this and because of just how i'm hardwired for connection and including people right it was like the angels sang the hallelujah chorus oh yeah i love and that. you know that scene in die hard when the guy that's trying to open the safe finally gets it open and they have the <laughs> hallelujah chorus playing yes. loud. okay that was that's what was happening in my brain when I saw the for the first time. I love that. And I was like mesmerized of oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever. Ever invented ever. And then I abandoned all my Yahoo groups and said, I'm over here. You come over here or you're not gonna hear from me again. Like, <laughs> <laughs> ultimatums left and right i mean join facebook or you be out of my life <laughs> i mean and i was literally teaching family members who had no clue how to use facebook over the phone click here and now click here and now click here mm -hmm. i old people i was teaching them how to use facebook because i was like i'm not going to be in the yahoo group anymore you better come over here if you want to talk to me <laughs> That's amazing. And I volunteered as tribute to teach old people how to use Facebook so that they could leave the Yahoo groups and join me in the promised land of milk and honey. You, you know? have earned several I mean, jewels in your crown for that alone. I am Absolutely. Sure. That is the Lord's work right there. <laughs> and, then, and then here's the beauty about Facebook. And here's what happened with our family. Because there were people in a certain Yahoo group and they couldn't be in this other Yahoo group with other families. So I had my different Yahoo groups of my family. Mm -hmm. Because I was friends with both sides and with people on both sides, when I made Facebook friends with both sides, these people that were very uncomfortable being Facebook friends with these other people, that are family, 
um, they could talk to one another. If I posted a picture and they could say hi to each other in the comments because I was the mediator in the middle with the, mm -hmm. with the post and friends with both sides and my family started talking to each other. How interesting. And I over time, over time, we've managed to, for the most part, anybody who wants to be Facebook friends with anybody else is now Facebook friends with somebody else. There are exceptions to that. And then there's really good reasons why there are some people who are not Facebook friends with other family members. There's just, it's just how it works. In our family, it's just a dynamic that is not going to go away. But for the most part, everybody that's open and willing has now connected to everybody else that's open and willing. Mm -hmm. And we've been to family events and people showed up and there's nervousness because you haven't seen these people in 30 years since you right. were. And now you're grown adults with your own kids coming to these family events, seeing each other for the first time. But... You've been talking to each other on Facebook. And so yeah. it, it feels like, I know them. I, I, I saw their picture and I saw what they did and what they had for lunch last week, you know? <laughs> and now I get to see them for the first time in 30 years since we were kids. That is wild. As of Facebook. I'm so glad to hear a positive story around Facebook because it's so toxic oh, me lately. Too. It refreshes <laughs> my heart. Another fun thing about Facebook. Like I was so enthralled with it that I I used to say I wish someone would pay me to be on Facebook all day long. There's because a job for that for sure. And <laughs> I currently, my bread and butter job since 2015, so for the last five years, I am paid to be on Facebook all day long. How do I get that? Like, are you, That's do you dream. have like a, an assistant job opening up soon or like? I don't have right now, <laughs> but I figured out a way to help. Uh, like when I knew I was going to have a book deal. And my agent told me, Anna, authors have to sell their own books and mm -hmm. figure it out so you can sell books. I was like, okay, well, I've been in sales since I was nine years old, selling yeah. kids door to door in Mexico. I have like four decades. Like, While you're here, would you like a day old cake? Because yes. I have it. Yes. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> so, um, so I just was like, I've spent my whole life in sales, selling appliances, you know, mm -hmm. like, like it was my job and it was, you know, slave labor. But, you know, I just said, okay, I'll figure it out. And I did. I figured yeah. it out. And now you I help. a pretty good job. I help other authors and publishers do sell their stuff. That's my paying job now. That's incredible. I love that. Um, so to kind of get around topics we've been skirting around, um, <laughs> so as I mentioned in our email, we do focus a lot on the salacious movies about true crime. And so um, oh my. <laughs> I know that there was a salacious movie about your father and it called the prophet of evil. That was like a CBS <laughs> yeah. movie. Um, yeah. Have you I just watched, watched it this it? afternoon? Oh, I watched it the day it came out and I okay. was horrified. And I, I watched it not knowing all the details about everything that my family had done. Okay. Before I watched it, I told a friend of mine, like I didn't talk about my family of origin very much. 
I told a friend of mine that I'd just become friends with. She had kids my age and we would go play mm-hmm. day in the park and stuff. I told her that the movie was going to be on and I told her there was a made for TV movie about my dad and it was just awful. But I, I wasn't prepared for how awful it was. Right. And so the night, really that bad. the night that I'm sitting in front of my TV, because back in that day, you had to sit in front of the TV at the time it was on. Right. Yeah. That's how it worked. Oh, the pioneer day. <laughs> don't understand that you can't watch it anytime you want. Um, you had to be sitting in front of the TV with your beverage you know, at seven o'clock or else you would miss, mm-hmm. you know? So I was sitting there yeah. and the scenes of that movie are still like terrorize me to this day. Oh. And I was not prepared for it because I wasn't even like, I vaguely knew those events had happened. And I'm sitting right. there in my seat, watching this unfold on the TV in front of me and thinking she's never going to talk to me again. I finally make a friend. She's oh, never no. <laughs> so the movie ends. I'm, I'm thinking, oh my gosh. And I go to bed that night thinking, I- I've lost my friend. Like, who would want to be friends with this? You know, and so the next morning I get a phone that call. That girl called her. you the next day and was like, girl, I need to know the tea. No. She? No. <laughs> she called me the next day and she says, Anna, do you want to come over for some milk and cookies? Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I just thought I'll never see from her from her again. And then this is the same friend that a few years later, two like two years later, we were standing in the park and I told her about my nightmare. And she was the one who said to me, if I make you an appointment with my counselor, I was about to go? ask if that was no her. Way. That was her. That is was her. wild. I yeah. love that. Yeah. And so, and that started me in 1995 on my healing journey that I began then and literally have spent almost 10 years in therapy with the first counselor for five years, my second counselor for four years. I was in counseling when I wrote my book. Because that's important if you have trauma and you're writing about it in this way. Absolutely. In in the care of somebody that you trust. Yes. And because of everything that I'm going through right now with COVID and the way it's triggering the Mm -hmm. uncertainty and things that we lived with as kids, um, I'm back in therapy with the same one that was so powerfully helpful to me. When I was writing, I love my, I love my therapist. I'm going to send all of her kids to college and I'm not even mad about it. It's fine. Yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm not mad about it because it's a real service. And so one of the things that I love to talk about, and I know this isn't about the salacious movie. We will get back to that. Oh, Oh, don't worry. But one of the things that I love to talk about is mental health. And for anybody who is has experienced any kind of childhood trauma, abuse, or neglect, or all three. Mm-hmm. There is no shame, no shame in asking for help. There is no shame in taking a medicine that will help you normalize and equalize your brain waves. And because trauma affects your brain. 
Oh, absolutely. How your brain organizes facts and events and circumstances. And so if you've experienced anything and there's any part of your life that consistently doesn't work and and you know what I'm talking about, if you mm-hmm. struggle in any area where you just can't seem to get it to work right. Mm-hmm. And over and over and over again, you keep bumping up against those walls that are just mm-hmm. like brick walls. You can't, you're stuck. Yeah. Get help. Ask yeah. for help. And it could be as simple as a good, good friend that you sit down to coffee with and say, you know, I'm struggling in this area and I think it has something to do with these events that happened in my childhood. And that could be your first step. So if you have struggled about anything and you keep bumping up against a wall, um, find a safe person to talk to mm-hmm. and to tell your stories to. You don't go shout it from the mountaintops or from the rooftops. <laughs> People mm-hmm. that get on rooftops and start shouting things, or they get put into other kinds of hospitals. <laughs> we're going to avoid that. Too. So we're going to avoid that. Yes, but yeah. you don't go and shout it from the rooftops. You tell your story to people who have earned the right to hear your story. Yeah, that's I think that's so, that's so important. I know like when I first went into therapy and I would, I would start to put all the pieces together and I'd be struggling with something and my therapist would just be like hammering me like, you know this, you know this, like, why are you struggling with this? Why? And I, I, I finally, I, well, I think it's because of this. And she'd be like, of course it's because of that. Like, come on. <laughs> Well, it's done worlds of good for me, you know, just to to realize that there is a reason that I think the way that I do and I act the way that I do. And it's not because I'm like messed up or whatever. It's because of trauma. And it's, it's, you know, learning to work through that and to become a better person. And that's so important. I've recently been studying the brain because I'm writing another book. And so I've been studying trauma. You heard it here first. (laughs) Yes. I've been studying trauma in the brain and the effects of it and all that because of my healing journey. And so here's what I know about trauma now. Trauma lives in the right side of your brain, Mm -hmm. the creative side of your brain. Whereas your logic and all that and your reasoning skills, that's on your left brain. Mm -hmm. When you're experiencing a traumatic event, like when the moment it's happening, your left brain shuts down. And you lose reasoning skills. You lose the ability to make choices and decisions and act in different ways. Mm-hmm. And the right brain takes over and processes everything that happens. But because it's not connected to the left brain at that time, you have a hard time articulating what happened in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it takes therapy to really be able to articulate the traumatic thing that happened. But here's the thing. When that happens, when the right side of your brain and when you're triggered, when you experience a trigger, um, the right brain is is lit up like a Christmas tree under those MRIs. And the left brain is quiet and silent and dark. And when you are triggered and you lose what's called executive function, Mm -hmm. your ability to be flexible and have flexible thinking and productively things done and check off tasks on your to-do list. If you have a task to do and it seems like an easy one that you should be able to do and you're sitting there telling yourself, 
this should be easy for me. Why is it so hard? Why am I struggling with this one little thing, doing this one little task that I know I need to do? Let's just say it's filing your taxes. And you just, you're just like, or just registering your car for, you know, whatever. Just a simple task that's overwhelming that you're normally thinking, I should be able to do this. Anytime you struggle with that kind of executive function um, and you've experienced trauma, that's how you can know that you really do need to talk to a therapist. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. So absolutely. now we can go, go back to talking about the salacious TV show. <laughs> I just now that I've so, off my pedestal and you know off my soapbox. I mean, <laughs> and my, my main takeaway from the movie was that your father was such a romantic. He um, he marries Rena. And then he starts talking to her about blood atonement and how she's going to kill people. And then the next day he teaches her how to shoot. Um, it just seems like the most romantic honeymoon I've ever seen on television. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, he was a piece of work. And I don't even have words for how to describe that. And I, even I, just, I felt so bad for her. She was just like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the whole thing was just so weird and awkward and watching it on unfold in front of my eyes on the TV was very awkward as well. And psychologically disturbing because I wasn't ready for that. Right. I, I, I didn't even know at that point everything that had happened in my family. Right. I knew some stuff. Remember, I found that one book when I lived with Mark and Lillian. We've talked about that. that. We, we wanted to know that. where you got that book. Like, did it just appear in a yes. Christmas talking? Like, it just no, appeared no, no. in where the story. <laughs> no, no, no. I just, I probably found it like putting away something in their room or something. Because I'm sure she kept the book, not out in plain sight. Right. Because there's stuff in that book that was bad. Right. And so I had to read that book up in my room by myself, absorb all of this information about my family of origin for the first time ever. And I had nobody to process that with. Right. It was that, crazy. I'm so interested in that. Like, I remember, and this is on such a much smaller scale, but this is how I equate it, is finding out, like, every like all the crimes that my own mother had committed and I was like this is why like my whole life is a lie and I can't even imagine how much that was multiplied in your own experience where you're reading this book and it's about people that you know that you talk to every day and one of those people you lived with that person yeah and those are like I mean those are accusations of murder and I just can't imagine being a teenager and reading that and thinking, wait, what is the truth? What is a lie? Um, you know, what, what do I do with this information now? Yeah. That's it, so crazy. It was, it was surreal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then you close the book and you kind of put it away and you try not to think about it. Which means you think and about then, it twice as hard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you did, you kind of do, but, but in my case, I think I had to put it away and not really not think about it psychologically. It just was too much. Right. Yeah. And so I did. And then, you know, you watch the movie made for TV movie in 1993 
and you're not remembering really about all that stuff that happened and all the people that died. And then you're sitting there watching it and knowing your friend is watching it. And it's basically the first friend I'd made in a long time, you know, because yeah. you're like, <laughs> it's just crazy. Um, but then, but then she was stayed my friend and then yeah. she was. Well, and it was interesting too, because as ridiculous as the movie was, and it was quite, um, there is a one, there is a scene in the movie that could have been lifted like straight out of your book. Even though your book hadn't been written yet, it was the scene where they go, the FBI goes into the house in Mexico and the, they arrest Rena and they arest, um, oh, yeah. the, your father's friend who says, Oh, I'm Herbal LeBaron. Yeah. And then they take him outside and the guy's like, Come on, that's not him. Yeah. <laughs> and your father had taken off by then. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah, it's crazy. Just, and it was interesting to see that from the, like you said, the adult's perspective, whereas you're, um, your telling was from the child's perspective. You're terrified. There are these people here that you don't know. It's the middle of the night. Everything is dark. Yeah. yeah. And it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The whole thing was just surreal. And the, the, the part about it that I think I just want your listeners to hear is that, like, all, it's almost like the worst your childhood was, the more you have to normalize it to live through it. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the more you need therapy in your adulthood, but because you've normalized it so well and lived with it so, so well and kept body and soul together so well, you've become a strong person. Mm-hmm. And then you don't think you need therapy mm-hmm. because you're you do. fine. <laughs> and, you know, I was doing just fine until I had that weird nightmare after seeing members I was not expecting at a wedding. Right. Right. Uh, and then all of a sudden I'm having nightmares that somebody came into my house and shot me and my children point blank. And I'm hoping yeah. I'm pretending that I'm dead so that I can go and find my kids when they leave. And I'm not going to move because if I, if I move, they're going to know I'm not dead and then they're going to shoot me and actually kill me. You know, those are the kinds of things that we lived through and, and then, and then you tell a friend just nonchalantly, yeah, I had this really weird nightmare last night and 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 then she's like, if I make you an appointment with a therapist, will you go? Like, he can see clearly that I needed help and I was blind to it. And so, no, come back. <laughs> After some technical difficulties, we're back. <laughs> and, and you were like, Yay. the thing I want your listeners to understand is, and then you just froze. And, and then, we were like, we'll never know. The world will never know. Never know. <laughs> so what I was going to say, so you can stitch this together as best as you can, is the thing that I want your reader, your listeners to know is if you experience trauma, abuse, and neglect, it's very difficult for you to see that you need help. And and you do. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to ask for help. It is. It is. I absolutely just, you are so like inspiring and I have like eight zillion questions. <laughs> <laughs> like the more you talk, the more I'm like, wait, but I want to know. And I really like, I'm wondering, you know, with, 
the book that you read and knowing how the people that you kind of love the most were also intertwined in this, you know, very dark side of life. Uh, how did you reconcile all that in your head? Or did you just decide to be like, you know what, this is the person that I know. And so that's what I'm going to go yeah. with. That was all we had. Yeah. I didn't have another choice, but to say, this is the person that I know today. Mm-hmm. And, and they've been nothing but good and kind. Right. And remain that way until the day they died. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about the people who were the heroes of my story. Right. That's and why it was so interesting because they were the heroes of your story. And I think, you know, everywhere, everyone is the villain in somebody's story. But, I mean, you know, they were the villain in a big way in some people's story. But to you, right. they were the heroes. And it's mm -hmm. so hard to reconcile all of those things and to form, like, um, I guess, a, a baseline, you know, opinion. And, I, you know, I, I, I'm guessing that it's just... You know, they're the hero in my story and they're going to remain that way. Yeah. And and here's why it's so important for everybody to get to tell their story is because other people's perspectives about how things happened and who did what, when, why, and where to them, they're also important. And hearing those yeah. perspectives and when I get together with my siblings and we rehash and hash and rehash these stories we get the broader perspective of everyone else who has told their stories and the way they intertwine and interact with our own. Mm -hmm. And it gives our stories context for how we reframe those events in our own mind so that, you know, in the moment when you're talking about it, you've brought that memory to from your subconscious where you don't think about it all the time to your conscious mm -hmm. mind. And when your memories are in your conscious mind, that's when they're malleable. Mm -hmm. That's why memory is such a faulty thing. You might it think, is. I was wearing that blue shirt. I know it for a fact. I was wearing a blue shirt. And then you look at pictures, and you're like, oh, nope, it was the black one. Mm -hmm. You know, because our memories just are faulty. And so every memoir in the history of ever, is there's faultiness about it. Mm -hmm. Not because they're lying, but because... Memory isn't perfect. Right. And especially memories when you're in tra trauma. Yes. So I relied, so on, I relied on my siblings heavily for reading the, the, the book in advance and helping me edit mm -hmm. and helping me really characterize people with a little bit of a broader brushstroke right. than the singular brushstroke of my own. And it was important to me to have a little bit broader perspective on the people that we knew and loved and cared about, because I knew that my perspective alone was changed and, and shifted and, and helped along by just my own experiences. Right. Yeah. And when you think about it, too, you not only have the layer of you know, those people were acting differently when they weren't, you know, with you or, but also they were acting under the influence of your father. 
Um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting, you know, contradiction there between whether they were acting of their own volition or whether they were just trying to do what your father was telling them was the right thing to do. Well, they were brainwashed. Yeah, There's exactly. no other way around it except they were brainwashed. Mm-hmm. And they thought they were doing what was right. And that's yeah. where, that's how I'm able to forgive. Yeah. That is how I'm able to forgive. Um, and so can we teach your listeners just a little thing about forgiveness? They of would course. love to hear it. Um, if not, I would love to hear it. So, <laughs> so forgiveness is not the, the good that comes from forgiveness isn't for the person who it's directed toward. Oftentimes, the people that have harmed us or done wrong by us, sometimes they're dead and gone. And and the forgiveness and the power to forgive um, lies within the person who was hurt. Mm -hmm. And it's for your benefit. Forgiveness isn't doesn't let the other person off the hook what they did was still wrong and what it does do is puts them directly in the hands of the almighty who mm-hmm. gets to decide these things whereas mm-hmm. us in our mere mortal human bodies when we've been harmed we have a difficult time mm-hmm. but when you're able to forgive it frees you to live your best life. Mm -hmm. And that's the important part because if there's things that happened 10, 15 years ago or five years ago, however many long ago, and you're still tied up in knots in your soul about the thing that happened and the other person who did wrong is over there in Miami living their best life and you're over here all tied up in knots, it's like they're still robbing you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can serve them with an eviction notice. Yeah. And say, unless you're going to start sending me checks, rent checks, you don't get to inside <laughs> my mind. You know, my mom has always told me in her East Texas accent, I make fun of it all the time. She says, you know, sometimes you just let people live rent free in your head. And <laughs> it's nice and to we're hear not, that we're not living that life anymore because it's robbing us. Right. It's just and hurting so you. I've been able to go, go through that forgiveness process and let go of those things that caused such irreparable harm to me. Mm-hmm. And I, when I say irreparable, it's there's ways in which I still suffer from the things yeah. that happen. There's not a way to make it all better and put a tidy bow on it. It's not right. possible. But you can let go of that bitterness of soul that resides there. And if you don't know, you're like, well, how do you forgive? Um, you, you lean into it just a little bit. You don't even <laughs> have to forgive the whole way on your first try. You just kind of like imagine, what would be life be like if I forgave that person? How good would my life be if I didn't think about this wrong thing that happened to me 12 hours out of my day? Right. right. You know, how much of my life would I get back if I evicted these, this thing and these people from my life? Not in a bad way. I say I use those words just because it makes it sound funny. 
Um, but you're actually psychologically like allowing the universe or God or, you know, whatever it is you believe about those kinds of things, karma, I don't, whatever it is, you allow that to take effect with the other person. And then you can really know when you've forgiven, when you're not even wishing them wrong. Like, like you don't wish bad things to happen on them. And the reason you don't wish bad things to happen on people that even the ones that harmed you is because you're a good person. Right. Inside, you're a good, decent human being, and you don't really want to cause harm to somebody. No. No. You don't wish harm on them. You wish that the pain that you've experienced would go away and that bitterness would go away. And the way to experiencing that freedom inside your own heart so you can live your best life is by saying, you know what, this thing that happened to me is real. And if you need to talk to a counselor about it, please do. Um, but when you let that go and you allow that, that bitterness of soul to just dissipate out into the atmosphere, and then you lean into that feeling of freedom, Mm -hmm. That's need to taste that one time. And then the second time when you're like, oh my gosh, I'm thinking about that again. And you're like, nope, not today. And then you experience that freedom again of I'm not feeling all tied up in my soul. Mm -hmm. You need to lean into that many, many times as you retrain your brain to understand that you have forgiven them like you're not you're not holding it against them anymore but because you're so used to like thinking about it it'll just keep popping up until mm -hmm. until you decide okay we're done with that again okay we're done with that again and again, <laughs> and again until and then one day you're going to be like oh my gosh I haven't thought about that in a month mm -hmm. and you're going to be like oh, I think I've forgiven them and it might take you three years to get to that place. Right. But do the work because start, lean into it because every moment that you don't start, it's going to take that much longer to get to that place. And Absolutely. I want everybody to get to walk and live their best life without that pain that somebody else caused them and that they're holding on to because it feels like, if I let go of this, does my life disappear? Well, it's official. This right. is the kindest and most uplifting episode we've ever had. Yes. And I think I'm going to step away and let you and Aaron host this from now on out. And our listeners might get <laughs> something more than just bombarded with the F word as we talk about true crime. Well, like <laughs> I mean, I do have like one last question and it really, um, you kind of touch on it on the, at the end of your book um, briefly where you talk about, you're letting your mother read through the manuscripts and oh. read through what, like your story and what had happened to you. Mm -hmm. And it kind of leaves not on a cliffhanger, so to speak, but you know, it's, it's a little bit unresolved because you hadn't released the book yet. So there was nothing to resolve at that point. Right. So what happened after, like, were y'all able to kind of resolve and, you know, make peace with everything that had happened to the, the to the pair of you and, you know, move forward after that? Yes. I, my mom, after my father died, um, she lost, you know, the cult disbanded. She went and found another polygamous cult to join. 
She just okay. couldn't live without it. It, it was it was all new, and this was her life. To and then she stayed with that. How do you find one of those? Is there like a Craigslist listing for like looking for another <laughs> wife? Like, how does she stumble no, on that? Like, I mean, I wasn't the one that found it. So this is the story that I was told because this was not my life. Um, okay. She said that it was in a bookstore one time, that a religious bookstore. And she overheard somebody in the next aisle over having a conversation. And she approached them and said, I'm really curious about what you're saying. And that was the end of that. She joined the cult. That's how she found them. Wow. So hang out in the religious section there of the just, if that's what I you're interested in. There are just cults just everywhere. And I don't know how I have not been sucked into one because I'm pretty stupid. <laughs> well, I told you, I almost went, I almost joined one several times growing up. I know. It's a, I know you did. It's a running, sorry, I just totally sidetracked your story. But no, now I'm talking. So um, ATI, which is the organization that um, the 19 Kids and Counting family belong to. Mm-hmm. I grew yes. up. I grew Bill up. Yes. Uh, okay. So I grew up by Alert Academy and mm-hmm. had lots of friends there. And wow. um, many times, like I had open privileges to come on whenever I wanted. And I was like welcomed. And um it's a it's an experience to like be able to just walk on and then leave when you want to but i it took me until much later to realize that like i was one step away from drinking the kool-aid of what could have been a very different existence for me okay did first you, of all it's aid, and second of all you're alive so you didn't drink it that's true <laughs> so did you recognize in the book when i talked about bill Gothard? yes yes yeah, I did too. I know exactly who that is. I grew up yeah. in a very evang- conservative evangelical Christian home. So yeah, so um, so yeah, that's um, basically the end. But no, but about my mom. Back yes. to my mom. Um, she was so worried about how I was going to portray her in the book. Right. And I told her, mom, "There's nothing about me telling my story that is intended to dishonor you. Right. I'm just going to say what happened." And so I went and read her the book because I wanted her to see before it was published. I wanted her to see with her own two eyes that I wasn't trying to dishonor her on purpose. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And we were able to read the book together and go through it. And, you know, we, we cried buckets of tears because she didn't know most of that stuff. She was gone right. a lot when I lived under her care until I was 13. And after I ran away from home, she didn't know anything about my life. Wow. So the majority of it was news to her. Wow. And how is that possible that she's my mother and I told my whole life story and the majority of it is news to her. I mean, she literally sat there on it. Did these things really happen? She couldn't believe it with her own yeah. <laughs> And the reason she couldn't believe it is because she lived most of her life in denial about the damage that was done to her children because of her beliefs. And now she has to face it in black and white with like, I mean, I was as kind as I could possibly be because it's oh, not. Oh, I thought you were extremely kind. To oh, absolutely. I mean, a section from the book when I would have been, you know, myself would have been kind of outraged at my own family. You really took it as, you know, she was doing what she needed to do or was being told to do. Um, you never seemed to really hold it against her um, in a way that 
stood in the way of your relationship. So I think, I mean, just you as a child are, were more mature as than I am as a almost 40 year old adult. So props to you. (laughs) Part of it was you had, you kind of had to be that way in order to survive. Right. So it was a survival instinct that kicked into gear. And then as a grown adult, I'm able to like reassess that situation and realize my mom does not know any better. She doesn't know how to live a different life. And the cult that she joined allowed contact with outsiders. And clearly I was an outsider. And so I would just have as much contact as I could with her. I would, you know, have the kind of relationship that she was capable of having, which wasn't much. You know, to live polygamy, you have to be emotionally disconnected. Right. Yeah. Oh, I think that's. Brittany Brown, who I adore, you know, says you cannot selectively numb your emotions. Mm-hmm. If you numb the negative ones, like anger and jealousy and rivalry and all those things, if you numb the negative ones, you're also numbing the positive ones. And so my mom had to numb all her emotions, even the good ones, mm-hmm. to live her life. And so she was not capable of the kind of mother-daughter relationship that my heart craved. And it helped me a lot one time when I heard a, a caller on a radio show talk about that they were going to go visit their dad, who was an alcoholic and abuser. And, you know, every every time she visited the dad and had dinner, it ended in tears and her stomping out and, you know, whatever. She just told this story. And this person said, oh, so you go to this dinner expecting your dad to bark like a dog but instead, he is—he's—he—he's he's an elephant. He can't bark like a dog because he's an elephant. Mm-hmm. And and you go there expecting to hear dog barking, and you can see the elephant every time, and you leave disappointed and in tears because you're trying to imagine him as a different person than who he is. Yeah. And when I heard that, it was like the like the clouds parted in how mm-hmm. I was expecting my mom to be a certain way for me that she was not capable of. And yeah. once I let that expectation go, I was able to form a relationship with her that you know I had to establish really clear boundaries for myself, for how mm-hmm. I would let her talk to me. She always wanted to preach her religion, you know? And finally, 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 after so many times of saying, mom, I don't really want to talk about that, Mom, no, I don't believe that. No, um, Joseph Smith was a pedophile. Thank like, you. Like, <laughs> like, say that this whole time. <laughs> Mom, I'm not going to say these things to you if you will stop trying to convert me. Right. But if you're going to say these things, then you have to be face, you have to face the facts. And, and I would just have a civil conversation with you, but you want to preach. So if you're going to preach, then I'm going to say these things. And mm-hmm. I, I would say them with love in my heart. Like, please don't preach at me, mom. And then she wouldn't honor that boundary. And so, okay, so you want me to believe in, in this religion that um, the man who founded it was a pedophile. Having sex with 14-year-old girls who lived in his home. Yes. And called it a No, that's gross. And made up a whole religion about it. And no, um, that's not what I'm going to do. And we Mm -hmm. had to have those, I had to have those hard conversations with her. Mm -hmm. And then eventually we, 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 
brought, we got to the point where we could talk and she knew not to bring it up mm-hmm. because I wasn't going to just sit there and pretend like it was okay for her to say these things to me. Right. right. No. And so I know I Paul and I have to had to do similar things in our own life. Yeah. Laying yeah. down back, you know, uh, with my father, you know, I, he knows if he says a certain word in my presence, that is a racist word. I will get up and leave the, I will leave where we are. And, yeah. and it, but it takes, it took time, but now he doesn't do it. So, right. but it's, 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 it's a slow slow yeah. process and it's it so frustrating well, and i <laughs> but, feel like it's so yeah. counterintuitive to who we are as people because we want to spare our family's feelings like mm-hmm. there's an innate mm-hmm. sense of family and so when your family crosses that boundary part of you doesn't want to upset that balance part of you right. doesn't want to offend them but you know that the only way is that if they're going to come at you and cross that boundary then you have to push back to show that you're not going to allow it right right so eventually we came to a, like a, we cobbled together the kind of relationship that was possible considering the circumstances and where I had made peace in my heart and didn't wish any ill will on her or anyone else, because that's me living my spirituality in a meaningful way. Right. And that's right. my, my business and that's my part. And so we were able to come to a meaningful relationship that meant something to each of us, even though it was not what she wanted, because she, what she wanted was for me to uproot and go marry some guy with seven wives. And that was not going to happen. So she wasn't going to get what she wanted. And I was going to be a constant disappointment for her, for her. Um, And that's fine. I'm over here living my best life. Mm -hmm. I'll call you once in a while and I'll go visit you once in a while for your birthday and stuff. And do take pictures, you know, cause we don't know when she's not going to be there anymore. And then, right. and then last December she passed away and now she's not there anymore. I'm and so guess, sorry. guess what? I was able to give the eulogy at her funeral. And I was able to do that with kindness, generosity of spirit and, and not gloss over the facts about how her religion so devastated her children's lives. And I did not gloss over that. I was very matter of fact about it and said it out loud because my siblings that were there needed to hear that. Right. But also say, say some kind things about her and bring up memories that we had about her that were good. And, right. and the whole thing was, in, from my perspective, it was beautiful. Now, there were people there that wanted the funeral to be a different way. And, um, right. and, and my mom had certain things that she wanted done based on the occult practices that she was part of. And my siblings and I decided that because she was already on the other side, she knew she was wrong now. And mm-hmm. we didn't want those things anymore. Oh. And so we decided to do her funeral the way we wanted. It, that would be meaningful to her children. Right. Mm-hmm. I love Not that. Not people in the cult. I do too. And I really like that. And we felt like it was actually the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. To honor her memory the best we could. 
in the way that was meaningful to us because we were the ones who lost our mother. Right. Right. And so we don't, Paul and I, Paul and I talk a lot about, um, you know, abusive relationships, traumatic relationships. Um, They're not all bad all the time because if they were then you wouldn't have been in them in the first place so it's it's really deducing the pulling the good things you know you can have good memories with a person that that did hurt you yeah so that's the reason my dad's cult broke up there was Mm -hmm. nothing redemptive about it see every one of my dad's children is out of the cult because there was not one good thing about it Mm mm-hmm Right. And when a relationship is all bad, then there's no relationship. Right. right. And, you know, we we did have, if you re- recall reading my book, there were certain chapters where I, I talked about my third grade teacher, for example. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. That I love so much. I um, love that your face just lit up when you mentioned her. Like, yes. <laughs> my third grade teacher was also my favorite teacher. So I was so like teachers and librarians are like my heroes and my like my favorite people on the planet because <laughs> learning saved my life. Oh, yes. Well, and Paul so- just got a little bit taller in his seat. I did yeah. because <laughs> teachers have been really shat upon lately. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. saying no. Teachers and librarians are just my favorite people on the planet, and and so when I my my publisher was saying when I was writing the book, um, and I was saying this is what this chapter is going to be in this chapter and this chapter and this chapter and all the way through it. It's just these horrible things that have happened to me. My publisher said, Anna, um, while your readers are going through your book, um, you're going to be taking them down into the valley of the shadow of death. And, but you can't leave them down there for a very long time. (laughs) You're going to have to let them come up for air. And so, um, are there any happy memories that you have that you can write about that will right. let your readers breathe? <laughs> and so that's why just, you know, sporadically in, in the stories, I tell some really fun things like the time, the beach house in Mexico, for sure. Uh-huh. You know? And the so, hammock. yes. The hammock just stuck with me. I was like, I love that because I love hammocks. <laughs> yes. And so there's just, you know, there were times when the reader got to like take a breath and go, oh, okay, <laughs> I think I can do this chapter now. <laughs> and, yeah, they were absolutely so necessary. Like, I yeah. think that even as a reader, as we got through parts of your life, I was like, but the beach house or like, <laughs> or, yeah. you know, there's, there's some silver lining somewhere. Yes. Well, and I think too, there was a good moment of respite in the fact that your father in your life was he was there but he was almost a fictional character in your life and when he was there he was like kind of there but not really and so you have this big bad man around all of this that is orchestrating all of these things but to you he's not exactly a real person yeah yeah I mean, I met him when you I was never, you didn't live with him. You didn't see him all that often. I met and so he didn't, him when I was nine. He didn't officially, like, he didn't really guide your life in, in a direct manner. Right. Mm-hmm. So meeting him when I was nine was like, oh, wow, this is the man they're talking about all the time, you know? Right. And, and that it was my father. 
and and the the few little moments I had with him, you know, I talk about those in the book because they were meaningful to me at the time. Right. And so, you know, knowing who he was and who he turned out to be and finding all that out in hindsight, you know, was like very traumatic. But at the same time, it was like, oh, this explains everything that was happening in my life and why it was so hard and why we had to move so often and why mm-hmm. all these things happened so inexplicably. People would come and go in your life and never get mentioned again. And it was because they were dead. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and I yeah. really felt it when you talk about the letter. We talk about the letter that your sister had that promised you would marriage and you kept it because it's the only thing you had that was certain to you that your father actually knew who you were. Yeah. And I mean, in spite of who my father was, you know, the made for TV movie, the salacious one we talked about for a little bit that we probably yeah. didn't accept fully and as much as you wanted to. And I apologize about that. Oh, but it does not matter. We're having so fine. much fun. We're fine. The movie <laughs> is called The Prophet of Evil. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there's just not really much that you can take away from a childhood when that is your father and he has a Wikipedia page that includes an Excel document to keep track of all his wives and children and where they're at and who they're with and who's what going what, when, why, and where. Uh-huh. And oh my gosh. that's how you know you're in trouble. And so, yes, if there's a piece of paper that shows that your dad in his own handwriting wrote your name out, but he left the H off of the end of my middle name. But oh, he really no. did that. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's like when, when, when that's all you get, it's like, okay, it's just got to be enough. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think lots of children go through a point in their life where they have to come to terms with the fact that their dad is a person and not this like godlike figure. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm a boy, but like, you know, we're racist, almost idolize our dad. But then you are on this whole different plane where your father was the chosen one from every like so the realization that that your father was human much less everything else you had to realize must have hit so much harder right well, and what i loved about that is that everyone around you elevated your father as the chosen one the prophet and to but to you and, and the way you talk about it in the book you didn't know who he was there wasn't like everyone was just telling you he's the prophet. He's the chosen one. He's the one. But you as a child are like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. In the, in the Mormon (laughs) faith, it's called the one mighty and strong. And that's Mm -hmm. he was, but before we finish, and I hope that your listeners are still listening because I want to differentiate something and be really clear about it. I mean, it's important. Yes. Um, The church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the one that, you know, you probably are familiar with and the, the yes. guys that you might do with the white shirts and stuff. Um, yes. That church disavowed polygamy in 1890. They don't yes. know absolutely polygamy. It's the fundamentalist Mormons and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints wants the whole name spelled out when you say it. Yes. Not, you don't want to be LDS or Mormon anymore. And so out of respect, I say the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay. But the fundamentalist Mormons want to be called fundamentalist Mormons. And so out of respect, that's what I call them. They believe in polygamy and continued practicing polygamy, even when it was disavowed by the church. And so that's why those two split. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to clarify that. 
because it's very important to both sides that that differentiation is hap- that is happening. Well, right. and it's very interesting to me still, like as much as I've studied it and, you know, lived, you know, in that area when everything was happening in 2008, how people still don't understand the difference. The difference. And yeah, to me, I'm like, wait, that, you know, the temple that's, you know, close to me here, that is a, to me, that's a completely different religion. That's not even in the same ballpark because they're so different in their um, doctrine. Right. And there's, there's some people do still lump them all together and they think they're all the same thing. And some people even lump um, the people from the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in with the Christian religion. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, not that's different accurate. to me. Too. That's not accurate. And even though the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has the, the word Jesus Christ in their name, um, when you actually study their doctrine and their sacred texts, yes. and they have lots of those, when you yes. study those and you and you deep dive into the thinking behind their religion and their theology you re- recognize that they're two different things. Oh, absolutely. I, and, um, and people that are not aware and haven't studied it don't understand that. Um, but it's, and it's okay for people to like, anybody who wants to call themselves a Christian can call themselves whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. But Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church and the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints mm-hmm. said, that all the other religions on the face of the earth were an abomination in God's eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you can't really say we're a Christian religion. Yeah. Right. It was deemed abominable right. by the founder of that religion. That's my sticking point right there. That a lot yeah. of people, because the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has um, normalized their religion with the changing of their doctrines yes. over the years, they've they've become more culturally acceptable. Right. Yes. They started mm-hmm. the becoming more culturally acceptable in 1890 when they disavowed polygamy. Right. Because polygamy wasn't culturally acceptable. Yes. And so they and that was the whole thing hung up on you know Utah becoming a state at that point. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So they made a lot of changes to their religion to make it more culturally acceptable. But that doesn't change the fact that it was founded by somebody who said that the all the religions on the face of the earth, including Christians and Christianity, were an abomination in the sight of the Lord. And Absolutely. I love how you differentiated that in your book when you talk about, you know, leaving that fit and coming into, you know, becoming a, a Christian and, you know, going to Bible camp and learning about Jesus and things like that and how it completely changed your worldview because while you had heard the name Jesus, you had no idea who he was. Right. We were taught, I mean, when we, when people spoke about Christians, it was like, so Christians, you know, it was like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, leading these people on a path to hell because they're teaching them they can get saved and then live like the devil and then go to heaven when they die. Like that that was literally 
how we were taught. <laughs> I mean, so like, I'm not saying like that doesn't Baptists happen. Baptists and but, Catholics. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am a practicing Baptist and I talk about mm-hmm. my faith quite a bit on here, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the distinction. Um, Aaron and I have done, I think two other episodes now on polygamous cults. And so in the first mm-hmm. time when we did Warren Jeffs, um, Erin actually did the, usually I do the history and she watches the movie, but we flipped it for that one. And she actually did a really good, like, as, as brief of a history as you can, that still made sense and talked about where yeah. the changes happen. But um, yeah, I, I mean, took a summer I could talk course. about that stuff. That could have been like a 40 hour long podcast oh, where I just yeah. explained the difference between the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the FLDS and how they became what they are. <laughs> And then, and then you take the FLDS and you you split it out into the different sects that they have, right? Because they have different sects, and it's 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 like a whole different world. It's really fascinating. And here's the thing about it: each one of those factions that has broken off from the mainstream Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, each one of them has their own prophet, who is the one mighty and strong. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, but, um, I wish I could I have screenshot your face for all of our people, <laughs> for all of our listeners. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yes. Question? Right. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I did notice on your website. Uh, I do. That, right? <laughs> that, uh, you have your own <laughs> podcast coming out. So yes. do you have details about that? Because our listeners will definitely want to know more about you. Of course I will. Okay. Um, Daughters of the Cult is the name of the podcast. Um, my sister Celia and I went and we recorded weeks. I mean, a whole week long, every day, eight hours a day, recording of all kinds of things that happened. And it, it was in production, like it was supposed to go into production Okay. when COVID happened. Ah, uh, pesky COVID. It, it's, COVID has ruined everything. COVID took all the nice things and said, no, you can't have that in this year. Maybe next year, but not <laughs> 2020. You know, so the podcast is on hold for now, the production gotcha. of it. But it is still like in the wings waiting for you know, things to change and for there to be the funds and everything because all of that takes time. Right. But if your listeners are interested, they can go to daughtersofthecult.com and that will redirect them right to my website, annalabaron.com. Okay. And, awesome. and you can sign up for the email list that's there. And we, I'm not going to bombard you because I have an email list of nice, nice and emails to my people about, you know, twice a year. So you won't get bombarded with emails and, until I know what's happening. And we have like, oh, here's when you can go listen to it. It could take a while. But if you're interested, you can go sign up. And then when I have information, you'll have information. Yes, do that. And also, just to our listeners, go follow Anna on TikTok. Anna, if you will, please drop your TikTok handle. I love your TikTok and I can't remember your handle, so I'm gonna let you go yes. ahead and do that. But it's a great, great TikTok. So definitely go follow that. Anna K. LeBaron is my handle across all social media platforms. Excellent. So you can 
follow me on any all of them. I put original content on every one of them for the most part, 90% of the time. That way, if you follow me on more than one, you're not going to see the same thing over and over. So what she's saying <laughs> is you have to follow all things for the full Anna experience. Yes. 100% like you definitely should. Each, each one of the busy lady and she's making things happen. So I mean, each one of social media platforms is intended for a different type of audience. So why would I put the same thing on Facebook than I put on Twitter? That doesn't make a lot of sense. I love right. that. I love that. Because I really do see Twitter as like I'm wearing a suit and tie when I type on Twitter and Facebook, mm-hmm. like I've cracked open a beer, but like I've only had mm-hmm. a couple of sips and TikTok. Yeah. If I'm browsing now, like I said, I use only TikTok for like teaching, but like if I'm browsing, yeah. I've had four beers and I'm scrolling. Let's see what's on this TikTok. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, TikTok for me has been the most fun platform. Mm-hmm. And, and I really started the, the, my first TikTok video, if you scrolled all the way back to the beginning and saw that first one, you can see how nervous I am. Because let me tell you this story, if you don't mind. Oh, please do. No, not at all. Please. <laughs> my my 21-year-old daughter was the one who got me on TikTok. She said, I'm on my, I want to do a dance with you. And in my head, I'm thinking, I don't need another social media app to keep up with. I have enough on my hands with just the ones I have. Right. You're and busy I making really- a living on Facebook already. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, that's I have my job and, you know, I have to do my thing. So I hard rolled my, my eyes, but I thought to myself, you know, she's 21. She's my youngest. And I really believe that when parents have adult children, they really need to just enter those adult children's world. Mm-hmm. and see what they're about like oh they didn't turn out the way you wanted whoa go <laughs> see them living their very best life and enjoy it 100 percent. they're choosing the life that they want go enjoy I love that. them i love that That's my son is 16 it. years old and I am, you know, he is choosing the life that he wants and he is living his own very best life. And I am just along for the ride at this point. And also like, okay, now don't be a jerk. (laughs) One other option is for them to go, mom is judging me. And why would I want to go around her when all she does is judge me? Mm -hmm. So she was like, will you do a TikTok with me? And so I was like a little bit judgy in my heart. But I said, yes, I'll do a TikTok with you. And then I just realized I was going to have to overcome all my resistance to dancing on video. Like, oh, <laughs> so she sends me the TikTok dance that she wants. And it's that one where you, you know, it's the easy one. You yes, that's yeah. the one. So like dutifully, I took my phone and set it up on the bookshelf where it would stand up and press the button to like, okay, what's happening here? And, how do I do this? And what's next? And which way do your hips go? And if we're both doing it, how are we going to coordinate? You know, I was just like all over the map trying to like get this right so that I wouldn't embarrass her or myself on yeah. TikTok. And so then um, I had downloaded the TikTok app, TikTok app months before, but I had lost my username and password, so I couldn't get back in. And in the meantime, I'm thinking, well, if I'm going to record a video, I'm going to just put it on TikTok. If I'm going to record it, like, well, I'm going to I'm going to figure out my name, username and password. So I figured it out. 
And mm. so by the time I finished practicing and had my moves down, it was weeks later, and I said to my daughter, okay, I'm ready to do the video. And by that time, her energy for that had just dissipated into the <laughs> oh, course. No. I mean, it was gone. And she was have like gone. a 10 second span and then you're done. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how long her energy for that lasted, but I worked up my nerve for weeks and then, and then she wasn't ready for it. But by that time, I had figured out my username and password because I was going to, if I was going to dance that video and learn and do the dance, I was going to upload it by golly. I learned and worked hard on that. (laughs) Yeah. Gone on to TikTok and, um, and it was like, you know, that the time I opened up Facebook for the first time, like Uh the heavens started in the clouds, singing the hallelujah chorus. Um, I was like, oh my gosh, these people are having so much fun. (gasps) We're having fun. (laughs) How much? And, even though it scared me half out of my mind to think about dancing on a video, I was like, they're having so much fun though. And, and they're having fun without me. <laughs> <laughs> and then by the time I'd watched enough TikTok at, you know, till two in the morning scrolling, cause you can't quit once you start, yep. you know, yeah. it's I hard know. to quit. Um, you and know, then I, the guy comes on and he's like, you've been scrolling for a while. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. <laughs> Netflix, are you still watching, you know? <laughs> so so I would I had learned enough and figured out enough and watched enough that when somebody did that one put a finger down, you know, uh-huh. where they yeah. tell a long, intricate story that you're the only person on the planet that can put a finger down. Yes. You know? I was like, oh my gosh, that's the one I'm gonna start with. And because I wasn't gonna dance on my own. Right. Like, no. no. <laughs> So I I got all prepared and got in my backyard with my good lighting and had my friend record me because, you know, I needed to have all my hands and be able to talk with my hands because that's how I do. Right. And do my thing. So I I did my video and I posted it. and, And I was basically just wanting to have fun. And what I recognized was that... Anytime, like I've been on camera and done hundreds of interviews and, and I'm comfortable in an interview style like us tonight. Mm-hmm. I've done this a thousand times and it's fun for me. I can, you can see that I can talk about anything for a long time. This is my favorite interview style is podcast. Uh-huh. So, but That's you put the camera with a script that I'm supposed to say or a thing that I'm supposed to do. And it's like I freeze Mm -hmm. and I sweat and I'm nervous. And when I found TikTok and realized how much fun everybody was having, I thought to myself, I'm going to do TikTok videos and help me overcome my resistance to doing things on camera that way. Because it was holding me in my profession and in my job. Um, Because I can do interviews, but creating a course or doing a five minute thing where you have to submit because you're going to be teaching about a subject and there's nobody on the other side to have a conversation with. So you just have to talk right. to the camera. Oh, did that you just was, describe oh, every yeah. virtual class I've taught lately? Mark, yeah. are you there? Are you here with yeah. us? Yes. <laughs> so, I decided I would just do TikTok videos just for fun and to overcome my resistance. 
to performing on camera. I and then, love that. And if you go watch my first videos, they're all just me having fun on TikTok. And even one of them, like, I wasn't even talking about, I have a book. I wasn't talking. I did say things that were just salacious enough to make people's eyes go, what? Wait. Uh -huh. Like, one of my second, like, one of my early videos, you know, where you have, where you say, this is my name. This is my sign, you know. So, that, mm -hmm. it was one of those videos that I stumbled upon yours first and went yes. down the rabbit hole. Yes. So, <laughs> where it says, your brothers and sisters. I put, I have 50, there's, I have 50 siblings. And then in parentheses, this is not a typo. Yes. And somebody, <laughs> somebody replied to that and commented and said, 50 siblings, question mark, exclamation point. And I replied. probably Paul. <laughs> I replied to that question with a video. Mm -hmm. And, and I was just in a, like, Oh my gosh, yes, there's 50 of us. <laughs> and I explain it a little bit. And that video where I responded to her question went viral. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. it, it is closing in on half a million views. Wow. wow. Like, incredible. If I had known that one was going to go viral, I might have done my hair different. Or, <laughs> I mean, I'm not with no makeup, nothing. I mean, I mean, it wasn't like horrible, but it wasn't my best work for sure. Right. <laughs> it was just video replying because it's easier to say that, explain uh -huh. it, than typing then it type out. it all out <laughs> with a restricted character count. I say, it's like Twitter, like old school Twitter. You only have 140 characters yeah. again. It is worse than Twitter. Yeah. It's like you have like 100 characters. I don't know. It's terrible. And, I hate And you know, I have a lot of words. You already know this. We had not noticed. <laughs> Yeah, no, so I was like, there's only one way to do this. And that video is just incredibly and and literally um I started replying to people's questions on with video mess, you know, with a video reply uh -huh. because it was just so much easier. And all of those like my the people that follow me don't appreciate my dancing videos as much as I really would love them to. Well they can get out of here with that negativity. All of my videos are replies and questions, answering questions about my polygamous background. You know, there's 10,000 views really fast. And then my one where I just danced my heart out, you know, and posted it has like 600 views. You know, you know and what? Ada doesn't need that kind of negativity. And if you love her for her polygamous stories, you love her for her dances. And so you better go like those videos. <laughs> If you don't love her and her dance videos, you don't deserve her and her polygamous answers. That's right. <laughs> but the, but this TikTok has been the most fun. And, and I really have overcome my resistance to being on camera now. And the other day I had to do something for my business and my work where I had to talk to the camera and, and teach for an hour. And I did it. And I love that I'm going to mess it up and I'm going to have to record it 12,000 times, you know, before I like it. It was like one take and I did it. And so TikTok actually did the trick. 
I love that. See, I jumped onto the TikTok train in the middle of quarantine because I am the most extroverted extrovert you can possibly meet. And so to be trapped at home for weeks on end, and my wife is a pediatrician, and so she's being exposed to COVID all the time, so it limits the interactions I can have with anybody. Then She's like, thank God I don't have to talk to Paul today. Right. (laughs) The only interaction I had for a long time was TikTok, and I'm so grateful that it felt like a community. And I kind of love that about budding social media in general, that Facebook was that positive place. Then Twitter was that positive place. And now we've got TikTok. Vine was the end all be all for me. I thought Vine was oh, the best. Vine. <laughs> I, love Vine. I never, I don't even know what Vine is. I knew it exists because my daughters know, told me about it, but that's all. TikTok is kind of like a extension of Vine. Vine was what, six second videos? And six now seconds. TikTok is a minute. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah I well, need more than six seconds. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, same. But yeah. I love Vine. And, it, you know, the first it was Facebook and then Twitter and then Twitter became like a dumpster fire really quickly, really fast. (laughs) And then we had Snapchat and like, it's just crazy. The evolution of social media. But I I think TikTok, TikTok, I really love because everyone on there, like you said, is just having a good time. They're just dancing and singing and telling, you know, stupid stories and that kind of stuff. I love that. Like, I need something happy. I don't want to hear anything else about sadness. Yeah. (laughs) It's It's been enough for me. It's been so much fun. And I'm so glad that it brought us together so that we could have this conversation. Absolutely. Amazing. This has been fantastic. And we thank you for two hours of your life. Aaron and I were so worried we wouldn't be able to fill time with you and we're panicking, (laughs) but you have been the best first interview and the future has a very high bar set for them. It's so true. Well, you guys are lovely people. And one thing I will commend you on is you did your homework. <laughs> you, you had the right questions. You had the things that you wanted your readers or your listeners to know about. And mm-hmm. so um, I hope I've served them well um, with all the yeah. stuff, but also the, the parts of, you know, life that, that I've been able to um, find meaning and joy and yeah. happiness for my own life. And I want that for others. Absolutely. Us too. It's been I like I feel like I'm under I'm underselling it when I say it's been such a pleasure. Such yes. a pleasure. Thank you so well, much. It was my pleasure because I I love this medium and I love um just podcasters in general are just amazing humans that they would even uh do what they do and and create these worlds for their listeners. Yeah. You have now just well, created we, I mean, um, we have a, a pres- blast. Yes. I was just going to say, you're now looking at the president and vice president of the Anna LeBaron fan club. Cause you have built oh, us up in such yeah. a way Woo! like <laughs> this, the positivity is flowing. Like you have done it, it for us. So we just appreciate you yeah. spending some time with us tonight. So, so much. Thank well, you so thank much, you. Anna. It was really a pleasure. I cannot wait to read your next book. And to keep, I'm going to go like all your dancing videos on TikTok. <laughs> yes, that's our lifetime sentence call to action. <laughs> Perfect. All right. All well, right. good night. Good Y'all night. Have a great, you have a great night. Thank you so much. This has been Lifetime Sentence, where the truth really is stranger than fiction. Thanks for listening.